Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that we do have two event series. The first one focuses on big data and data science. It's called Strata Data Conference, and you can find that at strataconf.com. The second conference focuses on AI. It's called the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at o'reillyaicon.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Naveen Rao, Vice President and General Manager of the Artificial Intelligence Product Group at Intel. In an earlier episode of this podcast, we learned that scaling current deep learning models requires innovations in both software and hardware. Through his startup Nirvana, since acquired by Intel, Naveen has been at the forefront of building a next-generation platform for deep learning and AI. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Naveen Rao, welcome to The Data Show. Thank you. Great to be here. So last year, I moderated a panel which took place inside Intel. Uh, You were on it. Uh, Carlos Guestrin, who's now at Apple, and Christopher Nguyen at Arimo. And from what I recall, you were a big proponent of deep learning on this panel, and you had the belief that... uh, it would dominate and maybe even start replacing other machine learning approaches. So one year later, how do you feel about uh, deep learning? I still feel exactly the same way. Uh, In fact, I think it's been proving out in a lot of different domains. I mean, deep learning really sort of started in the um, image uh, classification space. But I mean, now, of course, we, we apply it to not just classification, but we also do localization, um, you know, sampling, all kinds of stuff with images. Then we're also doing speech recognition. It's, it's in fact, the dominant way to do it now. Uh, natural language understanding, uh, time series analysis. We're seeing that happen uh, more and more. It's really kind of eating the world. Yeah, and, and uh, actually, uh, people are starting to uh, look at it even for recommenders, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this kind of research has been done for a while. And I think, uh, ultimately, a company like Google, right, that's their business. And you see uh, them investing very, very, uh, in a very big way here, so... So at, at uh, last year's inaugural O'Reilly AI conference, uh, you described a new processor technology from Intel Nirvana. So first of all, uh, sometimes I get confused. Is the name Intel Nirvana or is it Lakecrest? Uh, so Intel Nirvana is actually the name of the AI brand of Intel. Okay. So uh, Nirvana was my startup that was acquired last year. But that's become the AI brand of Intel. So you're going to start seeing a, a product line, a set of products coming out uh, with that uh, name on it. So it, if you talk to people who are doing deep learning at scale, uh, you begin realizing that actually the next generation machine learning or deep learning infrastructure will need innovations from both uh, hardware people and software people. So you spelled out a few things that uh, you folks were trying to do, right? So high-speed memory, uh, unprece- unprecedented compute density, processor that's suitable for training and inference. So what is the status of this technology and ha- have the core features remained the same? The core features have remained the same. Uh, we have modified our strategy a little bit and you know we're, we're doing something bigger now that we're part of a, a much larger entity. So I think this is great for innovation. Uh, we have a lot deeper pockets than we had as a small startup, so we can do something uh, much more innovative and much deeper on the technology side. And we're, we're working on an entire roadmap related to that. But the core concepts are still the same. I mean, 
memory subsystem that can support this kind of compute uh, ability to scale out and uh, you know be power efficient for different kinds of operations. And so what is, uh, for our listeners out there, so what's kind of like the timing for this technology to start becoming more widely available? Yeah, unfortunately, I can't talk about roadmaps that are unannounced. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, uh, sticking to, on this subject for uh, for a moment here. So uh, from your perspective, Naveen, the, so the future deep learning infrastructure, you will will rely on what? Open source software? Many different kinds of processors, proprietary interconnects, accelerators, are, are, are all of these part of that emerging uh, deep learning platform? Absolutely. And I think there's two ways to look at a deep learning platform. So one part of the process is training and exploration of neural network models. And so for that, I think everything you said is directly applicable. I, I would also add uh, host processors there to do a lot of the you know, more standard kinds of uh, transformations like scaling and rotations, these kinds of things. Then we also see that there's a divergence uh, between that kind of infrastructure that's built primarily for finding those models that work best on a particular data type. And by the way, that's a continual process, right? We're constantly building and innovating on models that get better performance and training against more and more data that comes in. Uh, but then the, the deployment side or inference side uh, tends to be a different set of requirements these days. Um, that becomes largely an operating expense um, optimization. Right, so scale out, but scale out with a, in a very power efficient way. So I think what we're seeing there is that um, training is largely about maximizing performance and and getting as many data points through uh, to build better models and iterate on, on them as fa- fast as possible. Then then the inference side is much more about scale out and uh, driving optimization on the power and operating operating budget side. So you can have uh, infrastructure to do training, and you train this humongous model. Then you push it out, say, to the phone or to some other device where maybe you compress and shrink the model a little bit. So then you have different kinds of hardware. That's right. I mean, the phone is one. I mean, that's that's an edge inference uh, problem. But even in the data center, we're seeing it um, uh, quite divergent. I mean, CPUs are used a lot for inference today because... Uh, they integrate very nicely with existing software infrastructures built for scale, right? Things like Hadoop and Spark. And uh, it's actually very easy to build a high reliability, high scalability infrastructure out of CPUs. And so layering inference on top of that is a much easier problem than trying to in- incorporate something that's very different and breaks that paradigm. I read an actually uh, incredible statistic. I think that in the data center, I think it's still 95% CPU. That's right. Yeah. I mean, CPUs are very dominant there. And I mean, we, we understand that that dominance doesn't come for free and it's not going to last forever without innovation. So that's actually one of the areas of innovation that we're really focusing on is uh, making sure that uh, we can optimize infrastructure for inference and also take advantage of uh, a lot of the software in, uh, investment that's been made over the last you know 20 years. So you made the distinction between training where you're still kind of learning the model and then inference where you're deploying it to production and uh, using it to to do some classification tasks or some scoring tasks. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I've noticed that uh, both you and also NVIDIA recently announced hardware where the positioning is around this piece of, this processor is suitable for both training and inference. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that kind of the direction the industry is moving toward? Uh, honestly, I think, Okay, so any any device that can do training can also do inference. Um, I think it is fair to say that. 
However, um, but that, but you have to do the inference at low power consumption, right? Correct. You care much more about the power consumption when you're doing inference because of the, the sheer scale involved. Um, there are other constraints like um, um, latency and things like that as well that might come into play. And so at Intel, we actually have a very nice portfolio that we can cover all of these cases. Uh, we're not really a one-size-fits-all shop. So uh, we're really trying to make sure our software stack works across these different devices like FPGAs and then new new features coming in on CPUs that uh, enable these things and make it easy for customers to use and make it pretty seamless for them to go from their training infrastructure, which we're also optimizing, and then uh, making it work on uh, different kinds of infrastructure. So how does the Intel Nirvana technology that you uh, uh, gave us a preview of uh, last year compare with the recently announced uh, Volta processor from NVIDIA, which which they're positioning to do what I described earlier, which is training and inference at reasonable power consumption. Yeah, I mean, I think I would look, I look at their infrastructure or their their architecture and it's much more of a training architecture. And, you know, I give them credit. They're doing a wonderful job and they're executing extremely well. Uh, no one can take that away from them. And, you know, they are uh, leading that charge on performance. But one thing they, they tend to tout a lot is uh, about teraflops. Um, teraflops are part of the story. There's no doubt about it. But if you don't have uh, a memory subsystem that's capable of keeping those teraflops busy, for instance, or, um, or, 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 or the rest of your pipeline uh, designed in such a way to keep those things busy, that, that can be a problem. So utilization is a big important thing. And I know they know that as well. So um, I, I think some of those numbers are a little bit of a marketing game. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the megahertz wars that we right, saw in CPUs. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, it's a little bit like that. We can do a lot with with lower numbers and actually might be higher performance on on the real metrics like training convergence time. You know, these sorts of things. No, I think at if, uh, at scale, utilization becomes a big, big consideration, right? Of course, yes. So obviously, you've got the hardware. But uh, developers need to be able to write uh, applications against this hardware, so software That's and right. software libraries become important. Uh, and you folks have uh, a bunch of software libraries that you've also started uh, releasing, right? So there's one called Nirvana Graph. And so maybe you can actually just give us a high-level uh, description of all your all the software tools that accompany your hardware. Absolutely. So. Uh, Intel Nirvana, again, is the overarching brand for all AI. So that includes the hardware that we're building as well as the software stack. And so in Intel Nirvana Graph is really about, um, it's, a, it's a way of abstracting primitives away from hardware and making it more tractable for a neural network user to, to use different types of hardware. So you can look at it like this. We have N different frameworks out there and we have N different uh, hardware platforms. If I had to optimize every framework for every hardware platform, I end up with an M times N problem. But if we can reduce those frameworks down to a set of primitives that's common or common enough, and then I can optimize each one of those primitives down onto each one of those hardware platforms, I end up with an M plus N problem, which is much easier to deal with. And so Nirvana Graph is really about that, is, is providing a, almost an abstraction, but it's in the form of a uh, graph execution compiler. And so we have actually have put out some uh, technical pre-releases now, and uh, we're going to be driving development of this in the open source uh, over the, the next year. So casual users of uh, deep learning have become familiar with an uh, open source project called Keras, mm-hmm. and a bunch of uh, frameworks have uh, targeted uh, uh, Keras and the Keras API. So how yeah. should users of Keras think of Nirvana Graph? 
Well, so Nirvana Graph is a lower level um, uh, construct or set of constructs. I mean, Keras can can build on top of Nirvana Graph. Uh, in fact, Keras works on top of TensorFlow, which can also work on top of Nirvana Graph. So um, you can think of it as like smaller Legos on which you can build bigger blocks. And then Keras is like kind of uh, big, complicated pieces that you can put together and build a, you know, a car or something like that. So, you know, Nirvana Graph is actually a smaller set of primitives that allows you to abstract away different hardware. And so that's how we can hit a broad set of use cases with our different hardware platforms, but kind of bring it together under one umbrella uh, under Nirvana Graph. So in terms of uh, how it's going to play out if I'm a user, and let's say I use a framework like uh, MXNet, right? So do I wait for the MXNet core team to start using their Vanna Graph, and then I, then I can reap the benefits? Is that... Uh, so some some frameworks out there, uh, one of which we own, Neon, uh, we will put out into the open source uh, bindings that allow it to work with Nirvana Graph. So TensorFlow, uh, MXNet also is a likely one. Um, you know, some more esoteric ones we probably won't support directly, and it'll be up to those uh, teams to really bring those changes in if they if they desire it. Uh, but some of the more common ones we are working with those framework uh, uh, owners to basically make them compatible with Nirvana Graph. So the Nirvana Graph, uh, at some level, sounds sort of like TensorFlow XLA. Is that am I uh, correct? Hey, you are correct. Yeah, I think we have a few other constructs that are um, a little bit different because we do own the hardware and we actually are, are are driving new kind of constructs for for parallelism and distributed computing. And so, um, we, in Nirvana Graph and XLA, actually, we are talking and we're going to make sure they are compatible um, with one another. Uh, how exactly that works and what it means is still a little bit up for debate, uh, so I don't want to comment on that. But Nirvana Graph will be compatible with TensorFlow, as will XLA. So uh, I don't know if XLA will basically support all the hardware constructs that we're building in just yet. So I think that's the way to, to look at these things. They are roughly similar. Uh, XLA is probably one step higher, or maybe half a step higher on the stack <laughs> than Graph is. So uh, at some point, then, uh, if I'm using... Uh... Uh, TensorFlow, I might actually be using Nirvana Graph without even knowing it, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, ideally, what we what you do is say, well, you buy a, you know, Intel Nirvana hardware or a box that's equipped with that in the cloud, and then you basically run TensorFlow that's set up to work on that hardware, and it will be using Nirvana Graph in the in the middle uh, to make that work. So, but how how do I ensure that I'm always up to date with the latest and greatest TensorFlow? I can just download the latest and greatest TensorFlow and it'll still be okay. Uh, well, you know, that's always a problem when you have different groups managing different projects. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't have a great answer for you on that. What I can say is that uh, this is what Neon is about, uh, is that we own something that's at the TensorFlow level, or actually almost the Keras level. And we own that whole stack and make sure it's compatible before we release it. So the newest stuff will always work on Neon, and whether it works in TensorFlow or not is, you know, it's not entirely, we can't guarantee that <laughs> because TensorFlow is not owned by us. So you also have a bigger role at Intel. You're the VP and general manager of the AI products group. So yeah. what other uh, AI initiatives underway are underway at the company that uh, uh, you would like to uh, tell the listeners? Yeah, so this has been an extremely exciting journey for us. I mean, uh, we came in to Intel about nine months ago, uh, or maybe 10 months ago now as an acquisition. And, uh, you know, we, now we have a chance to really drive the AI strategy. And so we formed the AI products group uh, about two and a half months ago 
to coalesce all the efforts at Intel um, around AI and really drive them forward. You know, a big investment here, uh, marketing, um, engineering, open source, lots of different things. And, you know, some of the exciting stuff we have are, uh, you know, Nirvana Graph we talked about and Neon. So that's the stuff that you'll see in the open source. And also we, uh, we're opening up, a, we have opened up a research lab. And so, uh, you know, we're going to focus on new kinds of models, better implementations for these models. I mean, we look at the world in a slightly different way than maybe a Google or a DeepMind does. They're probably looking at a higher level, level of the cognitive stack. We're kind of looking at it at a slightly lower level, at the substrate level. How can we build the best, fastest, most adaptable, scalable substrate on which to do AI? And that's the kind of research we want to drive forward. And that will feed into our products. So we look at that as a three to five year horizon of research. And we plan to publish and present that, you know, NIPS and ICOR, all the big conferences. Uh, but those things will be the innovation that lead into our products in the, in the subsequent years. So what's, uh, in your mind, uh, as we enter this uh, world of deep learning and AI, what's the ideal prof background of someone who, who wants to get into doing uh, cutting-edge research? It seems like you have to know a bunch of things, right? So a little bit of systems, obviously machine learning. Nowadays, it sounds like even hardware. True, but we're trying to make that as, as user-friendly as possible for those kind of technical users. I mean, computer scientists don't really know how to design hardware typically, and there's a good abstraction layer. And so, you know, good abstraction layer of software, right? And so we want to continue that and make it so that you don't have to know all of these things at such a high level of depth. The things you might need to know are um, precision and, uh, you know, where decimal places are and things like that. But even that, the, the casual, quote unquote, casual deep learning user uh, may not really need to know or, or care about those things as long as their model converges. So the eventual goal is really to build a system, uh, a software stack that makes it extremely easy to use. It's like, here's my model, specify the things that are hyperparameters and let the system go and figure out what makes that work or if it will work. And uh, we're not quite there yet. I don't think the whole community is there, but there's, there, we're, we're approaching that. There's a whole new set of research coming out of uh, places like Facebook and Baidu um, around making those sorts of things easier. So I, I think it's going to be very, it's going to be moving up the abstraction chain in the, la- in the next five years or so. So kids coming out of school, you probably don't need to learn all of that in-depth uh, stuff going on under the hood. Um, it will be abstracted. We'll move to more of an application layer uh, in the next few years. In fact, actually, the cloud the cloud providers are going to basically give you APIs to do all of the things, right? So that's right. I mean, we actually have that as well. We have something called uh, Intel Nirvana Cloud, which is essentially a learning API for uh, for neural networks and data ingestion. So data can sit in you know um, some sort of an object store, and then we can pull it in and actually run different kinds of models, all API based. That's something that's that's been there. We've had it under evaluation for a while, and we're probably going to be launching that uh, uh, soon. So I think you're going to be seeing more of that happening from the cloud service providers as well. Um, most of the APIs these days focus on inference, taking already trained models and you know uh, basically providing an API to do image classification or or video classification or something like that. We can do that as well, but we want to have we want to provide more tools for the user to allow them to to build novel models off of their own data and, and work for their unique needs. By the way, uh, I don't know where you sit on this issue, but uh, when people ask me, is there only going to be one or two deep learning framework? I always say no, because it's all, after all, it's a mach- only machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> only. No, not, not, I'm not trivializing it. But uh, so, uh, you know, because basically uh, 
it's one step in a lar- longer data pipeline, and uh, people are free to choose what to use at that step. So where, what, what do you think is going to happen as far as deep learning frameworks? Are we going to have major consolidation and be left with two or three? I mean, in the end, you probably will have you know three or four dominant ones and a few ones on the edges. I mean, I look at it kind of like programming languages or programming frameworks, right? I mean, you have the Microsoft stuff, you know, start out as a foundation classes and all those kinds of things. And, you know, they become a huge toolkit that a lot of developers use. But you still have the open source freely available GCC uh, stuff that's highly dominant. I think, you know, we see languages kind of go in and out uh, of fashion, right? I mean, Python is very much in fashion now, but other languages were in the past. So I don't think it's going to be a static thing that's going to converge at, you know, these three frameworks are going to be the ones. It'll be, you know, there'll be a winner for a few years and somebody will come out with some tweaks or some new models and a new framework and then things will gravitate toward that. The old frameworks will probably start adding those things in. They'll have this sort of balancing act of three to four frameworks kind of in a dominance with a with a whole long tail of, of smaller frameworks out there. I, I, I don't see any reason why this would be any different. And there's also actually uh, the notion of uh, people using what fits into their uh, existing setup and technology setup and software setup. So, for example, uh, you folks at Intel released a framework called BigDL, which is a library, uh, deep learning library built on top of Spark. And I'm actually surprised by uh, the number of people who uh, have uh, started using that. And on uh, after reflection, you realize, well, there's already a lot of Spark users and they don't really want to install another piece of software or bring in a GPU cluster. So if right. if it works for what they're doing, they'll start with that first, right? Yeah, I mean, never underestimate the laziness of an engineer, right? <laughs> I say that in jest, but I think in reality, you know, engineers are trying to get stuff done and they want to leverage the the tools that they have at hand, right? If you have a ready to go spark cluster and you've got your data sitting in there is it easier to pull that out and make a you know uh, a bespoke gpu training cluster or is it easier just to download a piece of software and, and try running it in situ uh, right. i think people are trying to get things done you know so we've talked a lot about uh, deep learning but the another area that i'm fascinated uh, with is this whole no- notion of uh, the transition from offline training to continuous learning, right? So this is the whole reinforcement learning and, and machine learning on live data. So yeah. what do you, is anything there that's particularly uh, uh, grabbing your interest? I mean, uh, I think, you know, reinforcement learning as a general class of problems, of course, is, is huge. I mean, this is part of the, what we're going to be doing in the research group is to understand how we can better meet those needs from a hardware software stack uh, to build systems that really can learn in real time. You know, I think GANs are extremely, uh, those are generative uh, adversarial networks. Yeah. Those are really interesting to me. I think there's a lot of active area. It's a big active area of research right now. And, uh, I, and the reason I think they're really cool is that, you know, they can sort of find this inherent structure by by having a, you know, a back and forth conversation, if you will, between two networks. And it's it seems very much how nature does it to some extent, right? I mean, uh, when we're born, we may have some primitives baked in, but, and some of them are given to us as labeled samples uh, by our parents. But largely, we sort of ping the environment and see what comes back, and we, we learn in that way. So I think there's something very natural about the way those work. Uh, those techniques combined with other reinforcement learning techniques are, are really exciting to me. Yeah, speaking of which, actually, if you survey uh, machine learning people, the, the two uh, main bottlenecks turn out to be one, uh, lack of training data, and, mm-hmm. and two, deploying to production. 
So the lack of training data is particularly uh, pronounced when it comes to deep learning because they require more training data, right? So, so I'm speculating that down the road, we'll prob uh, researchers will probably come up with techniques that uh, are more efficient and require less data. Yeah, I mean, we're already doing that. We can take data, we can you know, take some kind of model that's built uh, on data that's similar or something like that and actually start sampling off of that. So we're kind of making our own synthetic data. You could argue that natural neural systems do the same thing. I mean, when we, when we dream, we're basically doing something like that. We're sampling from a distribution of the real world. Our dreams tend to use the same physics of the real world and things like that, uh, but we can explore new spaces, right? So simulation is a big part of, of this, and I think that's actually going to be something that's really important in the future. And that's, that's, that's part of how we're thinking farther ahead. I mean, you know, dense compute engines are very important for the neural network side of things, but the simulation side of things still uses these uh, kind of standard compute engines. And so having the right combination of those things can actually be a very powerful, uh, very powerful tool for, for dealing with exactly the problem you're talking about. So uh, do you think that uh, in, in many ways we're looking at a world where we will have very, maybe even very specialized processors, domain-specific processors? So may, may, maybe this is the argument for FPGAs. Huh? Well, you know, FPGAs you can think of almost as a um, single-bit processor, right? They, they, just like any other architecture, they work very well for a certain set of problems. Uh, what I do think we're going to start seeing are, you know, Data centers are going to look like standard compute modules, like CPUs, and then the CPU will be a, a, a kind of a marshalling engine and, and, and calling up the most appropriate compute engine for a particular problem. And that way, we actually get a huge operational advantage in that we can build architectures that are, that are perfect for one problem. We can have the CPU decide what type of problem it's encountering and then offload it to the most appropriate engine, as opposed to trying to make everything work on a CPU. So that actually is, I think, the wave of the future. Uh, and it actually has a lot of parallels in the way a brain works, right? I mean, uh, we have a brainstem, and a brainstem is very generic in a sense. It's the old brain, uh, it's been called. And, you know, it keeps the lights on. If, if you get shot in the head and your brainstem is hit, you're done. <laughs> uh, but a lot of the more interesting compute happens in the cortex, which uh, is actually highly specialized for different data types. Um, not, not physically, but actually the way it learns. So each different piece of the cortex learns how to process either audio data or visual data or what have you. And uh, it's, it's not, we, we don't have one type of cor one piece of cortex processing all of those. We have different areas of specialization. And I think that's something we're going to start seeing in computers uh, in the next few years. So we're releasing this podcast episode on a day when we're announcing that uh, we're partnering with Intel Nirvana on the <laughs> O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which is actually uh, off to a great start. And our goal of becoming the industry gathering place for applied AI is uh, is working out well. I mean, this conference uh, that we're in in New York is uh, sold out. So we're super happy to partner with Intel and Nirvana. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see Naveen at these events for uh, many, many years to come. Absolutely. We're very excited about the partnership. And we want to provide these forums uh, to bring people together and, and discuss the latest innovations out there. All right. Thank you, Naveen. Thank you. You can follow Naveen Rao on Twitter at Naveen G. Rao and also at Intel AI. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.